0: Ezekiel 2. We will speed up, I promise that. We're going to see some themes that, as we go through this book, they're going to come up again and again and again and again. One of them is Ruach, which is often translated spirit. We saw that in chapter 1, there was a Ruach storm that came out of the north and On it was the Godmobile, and God's kavod, his glory descends, and it knocks Ezekiel to the ground. And that's where we left him in chapter one. So that's going to, over and over, the rock's going to come up. God's presence with his people in very hard places where it's unexpected is a theme in Ezekiel, that God shows up in Babylon, the most evil city in the world, that The root problem is a problem of the heart. We're going to see that in our study tonight. And it is a theme in Ezekiel. It's actually a theme in the Bible. That what happened in Genesis 3 was there was a little snake that wrapped around the human heart and began to bite us. And its fangs are continually poisoning us and taking us away from the Imago day into this selfish, corrupted thing that really dominates most of human civilization. So it's a heart problem, and then the other theme is this: where God's ruach shows up, great work happens. That yes, God is everywhere, but where His Spirit is, there's this incredible work that typically takes place, and that happens in the Book of Ezekiel. All right, so here's what we do tonight: Chapter two, we're going to look at that. That's his commission. Chapter three, the verse, first part of it is his authority. Ezekiel's authority. End of chapter three is Ezekiel's mission. And then we're gonna do chapters four through seven, which are his methods. So we have a lot to cover. Chapter two, verse one. This is Ezekiel's commission. So we left and God's kavod knocks Ezekiel to the ground. Kavod just means heavy. God's weight Knocks Ezekiel to the ground, and then he said, God said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit, Ruach, entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, it's really just simply human. Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. I love that. (laughs) They will know that a prophet has been among them, and you'll see why. (laughs) And you, son of man, be not afraid of them. Be not afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. (laughs) This is Ezekiel's commission. Here's a job I have for you. You're going to preach to this super tough congregation, right? Verse six, preaching to them is like being thrown into a blackberry bush and landing on a family of scorpions. That's what preaching to this congregation is going to be like. Because three times they are a rebellious house. Just in case you miss it, Ezekiel, they're a rebellious house. I'm so glad church is different today. (laughs) Did you know the average pastor makes it for two years? Yep, do you know why? Because they don't expect verses four and six. They think these people will receive my wisdom and they will trust me. And whatever I tell them to do, they will obey it completely, and they will live fruitful lives and they will send me thank you cards." But that doesn't always happen, right? Ask Pastor Glenn. He's had his car keyed a couple times. The reason why? Because Glenn tells people the truth. And sometimes people don't want to hear the truth. Sometimes they react like scorpions and they want to bite you and sting you. So Glenn used to joke, he goes, I still have one panel left, (laughs) I'm just waiting. I've got one good panel left. He tells the truth. So Ezekiel, here's what we find out. Ezekiel makes it for 23 years preaching to a congregation of Blackberry Scorpion people. How does he do it? At least 23 years. That's what we know. He could have gone even longer. How does he maintain ministry for that long? I think it's verse 2. And the Ruach entered into me and set me on my feet. Ezekiel, stand up. God's kavod is waiting me on. I can't really stand up. Boom, the spirit comes into him and sets him on his feet. This is the same Ruach that we saw in chapter one, the same spirit. That word Ruach is translated often spirit, wind, breath, that powers the Godmobile, right? It animates it, it enlives it, it gives it strength and power. That same ruach comes into Ezekiel, and if you know the prophets, Ezekiel is the prophet of the Spirit in the Old Testament. So when you look at studying the Holy Spirit, whenever you start that, it's Genesis a little bit, and then it's Ezekiel. It's over and over. He is the prophet of the Holy Spirit. This word appears over and over and over again. And he is, if you, you'll see as we go through this, if you've read the book, he's unshakable. Really hard things happen to him, but he's unshakable. Very different than the previous prophet, if you've read through, Jeremiah. Jeremiah, a contemporary of Ezekiel, he's manic, if you know him. One of me is like, all right. Next to me is like, God, just kill me. I hate this thing. Depressed. He actually uses, Jeremiah does a rape term about what he believes God has done to him. Read Jeremiah 20. So Jeremiah, very different, very kind of like, ah, not Ezekiel. Ezekiel is just, I'm going to do hard things. His wife dies, and God says, don't cry. And Ezekiel doesn't cry. He's unshakable. He reminds me a little bit of a hero of mine, Jonathan Edwards, uh, Many people believe Jonathan Edwards is the greatest theologian that America has ever produced. He's a brilliant man. Died at 45 and yet just brilliant individual. But you may not know this about Jonathan Edwards. Um, He was fired from his first church. Probably a briar patch with scorpions in it. So if Jonathan Edwards can get fired, I just say, nobody is safe. Nobody's safe in this position. So they get together, they fire Jonathan Edwards, the greatest theologian. It's like Michael Jordan was cut from his team. It's kind of like that same thing. They cut the Michael Jordan of American theology. And the deacon that was involved in this, the next day he saw Jonathan Edwards as this young man, and Jonathan Edwards, he said, was walking down the road with a giant smile on his face and whistling and enjoying the beauty of the day. And that deacon said, that's a man of God. He's not pouting. He's not, oh, woe is me. He's still like, all right, unflappable, unshakable. Why? I think here's the key. You that minister know this. If you do it for someone else, oh, man, they'll never respond to you the way you thought they should. They'll never be thankful enough. They'll never obey you. If you're doing it for somebody else, look out. If you're doing it for money or accolades or prestige or power, look out. But if you are doing it because you have been enlivened by the Holy Spirit and you know this is what I'm called to do, then you like Ezekiel or Jonathan Edwards or Paul or whoever it is, you're unflappable. No, God's called me to this. I'm gonna keep doing it. It doesn't matter how people react to me because I know this is what I'm called to do. So he is commissioned. And in verse four, we get a hint at what will be a theme in Ezekiel, and it's in the Bible. So my translation says, the descendants also are impudent and stubborn. Does anyone have any other translations of those words? Does anyone have hard-hearted? Stiff-faced and hard-hearted. Literally, in the Hebrew, it is stiff-faced and hard-hearted. I don't know why the king, or why most versions don't translate it that way. Yeah, it's stiff-faced, hard-hearted. So what Ezekiel is being told here is the problem with this people it goes all the way back to Genesis 3, where a snake wrapped around their heart is now poisoning them. And you see in Exodus 32 and Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 30 that you're going to need something done about your heart which is for me in counseling, this is always where I go. There's all kinds of methods, and I was taught a lot of methods in school, but I always go to the heart. Because if your heart isn't into this, if your heart isn't into the marriage, if your heart isn't into changing, if if there's any other motivation to this, well, let's just go home. Don't waste my time. So I try to get right to the heart as quick as I can. Where's your heart? Because that's what matters. And what we get in Ezekiel is, He has a brilliant solution to the heart. It's chapter 36, one of the most important chapters in the Bible. So God gives Ezekiel. The problem with these people, this rebellious house, this rebellious house, scorpions, briars, thorny, pokey, the problem is their heart. But I've got a solution, and it's brilliant, okay? So there's his commission, chapter 2. Now, verse 8, we begin to get the next thing, which is his authority. Okay, you've been commissioned. Okay, great how do I have authority with scorpions and briar branches? What am I supposed to do? Listen to this. This is awesome. But you, son of man, human, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it before me. And it had written on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe, not ice cream, this is Brussels sprouts and raw kale. And he said to me, son of man, eat Whatever you find here, eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you, and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. How interesting here's his authority. The scroll appears, and when he eats it, even though it's full of words, verse 10 says, lamentations, mourning, and woe. When he eats it, how does it taste? Good. Isn't that shocking? I would think a scroll of lamentations and woe and mourning would be really a terrible thing to eat, but Ezekiel eats it, and it's sweet. This is giving us It's a foreshadow of the rest of this book. Because Ezekiel is going to talk about lamentations, mourning, and woe. Jerusalem, the temple, God's people are going to be destroyed. Super hard words. The rest of the prophets are going to be saying, no, 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 we're going to win. We're going to do great things. Ezekiel is going to come back and say, "Uh uh-uh, nope. Jerusalem will be destroyed. The temple will be burned to the ground. And all of you guys will become refugees. So he's gonna have the really hard words. But the end is going to be super sweet. The end of it will be sweet. When God's judgment works on you, the end result is it transforms you into something sweet. That's what this is saying. That's really the entire book of Ezekiel. When God's judgment works on you, oh, the end result is so sweet. New heart, new spirit, new city. And the name of that city, the end of Ezekiel, ends with this. They live in a city, and the city's name is called Yahweh is there. The name of the city is God lives there. And that's a brilliant place to live. So yes, lamentation, mourning, and woe. But the end, oh, so good. When God's word rakes you over the coals, know this. It's always to make you more beautiful. It's always to make the gold in you shine that much more brilliantly. God's judgments are for our good. Paul puts it like this, 2 Corinthians 2.4. He says to this crew that he really hammered in 1 Corinthians. He said, you know the proof of my love because I told you difficult things. Because I told you the truth. Because I raked you over the coals. That's how you know I love you. If I didn't love you, then I would tell you all kinds of things so that you would like me. I'd tell you little lies, sweet little lies. But I love you. And because I love you, I'm actually willing to tell you the hard, truthful things. That's God. Judgment's coming. Hard things are coming. I'm going to tell you the truth. You're a rebellious house. This is how you get straightened out. You need a new heart. You need a new spirit. You need to be in a new city. Yeah, that's what you need. And in order to get you there, some coals are going to happen. But it's going to be sweet. The end result will be sweet. I love people that tell me the truth. I love it. I love people that tell me, hey, Matt, your zipper's down <laughs> before I walk up here. And it's like maybe every other Sunday, in one of the messages, They'll be right in the middle of preaching. I'll be like, is my zipper down? And at that point, what do I do, right? There's nothing I can do. I just have to be like, uh, it's not, it's not. I able people tell me, Matt, you have something in your nose. Thank you for telling me that, right? I'm going to give you a hug after I wipe my nose. Like I appreciate tr- an even harder truth than that. Please tell me the truth. Because it proves you actually love me. People that are always flattering, all they want is that back to them. It's, I want you to like me. You liking me is more important than me telling you the truth. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. So here, God's saying very hard things, but I want you to end well. By the way, there's another scroll that another prophet eats. Who is that prophet? John the Revelator. When he eats it, what happens? It's bitter. Why is it bitter in Revelation and sweet in Ezekiel? Revelation is the end. That's exactly it. Because revelation is the end of the line for so many people. And that's bitter. God has given chance after chance after chance after chance. Repent, repent, repent. Angels fly across the sky. Repent, repent, repent. It's the end of the line. And that's bitter. It's a bitter end. Yeah. Hmm. One thing worth repeating is this. What is Ezekiel's authority? It's God's word, right? Eat this scroll. Fill your belly with it. You can just look at chapter two, verse four. You will say, thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, they will know that a prophet has been among them. His authority is God's word. God is speaking to Ezekiel. I'm going to feed you my word and you are going to be a conduit for that. And that is what gives you authority. I love the fact that God speaks to people. Isn't that relational? Like God is a relational God. He speaks to these prophets. I want to speak to you, Ezekiel. I'm coming out of the north in my Godmobile because I want to speak to you, Ezekiel. I love that. God's a relational God. Oh, come on, Matt. I have a relationship with my dog and he doesn't talk to me. Would your relationship with your dog change if he did talk to you? Absolutely. If you came home and your dog's like, listen, man, I hate it when you grab my face and you're like, oh, you're such a cute little dog. I hate it when you do that to me. You have bad breath. It bothers me. Would you stop? That's going to change, right? You're going to figure out, hey, my dog doesn't like certain things. He's not my slave anymore. God's word tells us what God likes, what God is like. It helps us know, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is how I'm supposed to minister. It is the foundation for what we do. And when we get away from God's word, you can always see things get strange and weird. All of a sudden we start thinking, well, God likes us to throw virgins in volcanoes. Or God's spirit told me to do this. And you're like, wait, that does not line up with God's word. That doesn't seem quite right. Or sin is not these things anymore. Or Jesus is not this stuff anymore. Once you get away from God's word, your authority and what God God likes is gone. And secondly, very importantly, Ezekiel speaks. Like the majority of this book is Ezekiel talking. I think a lot of Christians have bought into this idea that you don't have to actually share God's word anymore. So there's this famous saying preach always, and when necessary, use words. Have you heard that before? It's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. And there's some truth to it. Nobody knows if St. Francis of Assisi actually said it. I don't know. And yes, our actions matter. But how does that work? How do we preach without using words? How do you actually do that? Is it you go to pizza after church and you order two large pepperoni pizzas and you order soda and people notice that and they're like I noticed when you guys ordered pizza you're the only crew in here that did not order beer please tell me how I can be saved by the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ anybody no that doesn't happen Romans 10:14 says how shall they believe unless somebody preach you got to tell people the truth and Ezekiel, we're going to get to how that happens. But preaching is necessary. We're conduits of God's word, not containers, not just me, not just trying to suck it all up for myself. It's I learn why so I can then give out to other people. I'm a conduit. And when you're a conduit, man, you're so healthy. The best illustration is the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea in Israel. The Sea of Galilee has life, and it's brilliant because the Jordan River flows into it and flows out of it. The Dead Sea is dead because the Jordan River just dumps into it and there's no outflow. It's gotta be in, I'm eating, why? So I can spread and share and talk and preach. So that's his, his, authority, it's God's word. Now we come to his mission, verse four. And he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with them my words. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech in a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of foreign speech in a hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely, if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. Makes me think of America. Missions are easy compared to America. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. It's essentially the same words from Verse 4, chapter 2. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. (laughs) Then verse 12. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and behold, and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the glory of Yahweh from its place. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them, and the sound of a great earthquake, The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness, in the heat of my spirit, and the hand of Yahweh being strong upon me. And I came to the exiles at Tel Abib, who were dwelling by the Chibar Canal, and I sat there where they were dwelling, and I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. His mission, you're going to preach to really tough people. His response is, if you look at verses 14 and 15, is Ezekiel happy? Uh Uh-uh, right? He says, I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit. If your spirit is hot, what does that mean? It kind of ticked. I'm kind of bitter. I'm kind of ticked. And I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. He's not happy. Are you kidding me, God? I got to preach to scorpions in blackberry bushes? Rebellious people that will not listen to me? That's my commission? And so he sits for seven days. Very important. Because in chapter one, we learned that it was probably Ezekiel's 30th birthday. And as a priest, that would have been the day that he was inaugurated into the priesthood. And the priesthood, when you got inaugurated, there was a seven-day party that happened. You know, seven-day party. I am a priest. Party for seven days. Ezekiel... His inauguration is, you're not going to be a priest. You're going to be a prophet to stiff-necked, hard-hearted people that are going to treat you like a blackberry bush and a stinging uh, source for scorpions. And so he has a pity party for seven days. Really, I got to preach to them? I got to preach at Burning Man? I got to preach in Ashland? That's too hard. I don't want to do it. That's kind of the idea here. Have you ever done that to God? Where God has called you to something and you've thrown a pity party, sat for seven days or whatever it is? I have to go to Africa? Will I have to eat bugs? I have to be nice to my mother-in-law on Thanksgiving? I have to forgive my spouse? I have to tell the truth? I have to talk to that druggie? Listen to how God responds. It's brilliant. Verse 16. And at the end of seven days, God like lets him have seven days of pity party. Okay, fine. You want to sit there and sulk? God just waits. Okay. You could be partying right now. And trust me, this is going to work out good. Or I'll let you have your full pity party. I think God sometimes just lets us have a pity party. You want to do it for seven days? Go right ahead. Just be miserable. I'll let you be miserable. After seven days, God's like, okay, finally. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whether you hear, Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. And you give them no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. What did God just say to Ezekiel? No, he said, if you don't do what I'm telling you, I will hold you responsible. Isn't that what he just told Ezekiel? I've made you a watchman. If you do not speak the words that I've given to you, they're gonna suffer for their sins, but the end of verse 18, his blood I will require at your hand. If you're going to keep throwing this pity party, listen, bud, I'm going to hold you responsible. That's a New Testament principle. Too much is given, much is required. Ezekiel, bro. And then he goes on. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. You're free. You've been a conduit. You've done your responsibility. Don't worry about it, okay? So, big picture here, and this chapter goes on and on with this same thing. Big picture is this. Ezekiel, listen. You're just a watchman. Your job is to warn. You're standing on a tower. You see an enemy. You say, hey, an enemy's coming. How people respond to that is up to them. You've done your job. If you've warned them, You've done your job. You don't have to protect them. You don't have to be their savior. You don't have to be the second coming. All you have to do is speak the words that I give to you. That's it. Real simple. It's like this Ezekiel, you obey, and then trust me with the outcome. If this is what you're supposed to do, Ezekiel, do what you're supposed to do. Don't worry about how people respond to you. Don't worry if they don't like you. Don't worry about any of that stuff. Don't worry if they get saved or don't. You do your job. And then trust me with the results. If you get this simple thing right here, man, you are so set free. You don't have to worry about like, what people feel about you or how they respond to you. It's just I'm, just, I'm just the mailman. I'm just the mailman. So there's been a couple monumental things that have happened to me in life. One of them, was this right here. It was 2000. i just returned from the mission field, got married, and uh, I wanted to do a Bible study. And the only Bible study that I could get at that time was at Vintage Suites in the dementia ward. So I could preach the same message every single week and nobody would know it. So it was kind of (laughs) cool. I didn't, but I could have. So I'd go in there on Saturday mornings um, and there was a couple people that actually would come in and they, would just, they were there like to bless the people and love on them, and they would sit through the message as well. Uh, one of them was this 86-year-old. They just, she was just a saint of a lady. She's since gone ahead of me to heaven. Uh, just a wonderful lady. And she'd been coming for like three or four months. And after the teaching time, I sang three songs too. Those were the, I sang the same three songs for two years straight because I only knew three songs and a guitar. And they're like, that was such a great song. Did you write that? No, it's Amazing Grace. But anyways, <laughs> so this 86-year-old lady said, you know, um, God impressed something on my heart and I want to share it with you. I said, okay, go ahead, great. She goes, I have this neighbor that got sick. And he's in the hospital. He's in the hospital in Southern Oregon up there on Washington Boulevard. So he's in, in Southern Oregon Hospital and she gave me the, the number and everything. And she said, I, I just would love for you to go visit him. I'm like, oh, boy. I mean, how do you do that, right? I don't know this guy. Like, I, like, I'm like, oh, well, okay. Um, why do you want me to do that? He said, well, he's an atheist. I'm like, oh, well, that's even greater. Thank you. Scorpions and blackberry bushes, awesome. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. Well, you know, let me think about that. And, and, and she goes, one more thing. He's really mean, I'm like, are you serious? You want me to go to your mean old atheist neighbor? Yes, I just really think he would listen to you. I just have been praying about it, and I think you're the one to do it. So I'm like, oh, man. I said, oh, okay, I'll do it. So Sunday comes and goes. Monday comes and goes, and I work right next to it. I work at Met One Instrument. Literally, I'm a block from it. So I'm driving by it on Monday on the way to work and the way home. I don't want to do it today. Tuesday, drive by, drive by. Wednesday, drive by, drive by. Thursday, drive by, drive by. Friday, drive by. I'm leaving. I'm thinking, oh man, tomorrow morning, I'm going to go to this Bible study. This awesome lady's going to be like, did you talk to him? Like you said you would. So I'm like, okay, fine. So I go into the, like, you know, I'm pretty brave, but this is as awkward as it gets for me. Like, it's like a cold call. Like, Hey, how are you? So I'm like, okay, how do I do this? Like, do I have a story? Like, what do I do? So I get to his room, I'm like, hi there. And he just looks at me and goes, who are you? <laughs> well, um, uh, I'm a friend of your neighbor's. The old Christian lady? Oh man, yeah, the old Christian lady. <laughs> He's like, well, what do you want? Well, um, actually, I just want to see how you're doing. No, you don't. What do you want? <laughs> I, I want to share the gospel with you. And there's like this pause. I'm like, where are we going here? And he just said, okay, tell me it. And I wasn't actually prepared for that. So I'm like, well, um, let's see. Uh, let, well, the, the gospel, yeah. Um, Ezekiel was, ta- no, not Ezekiel. Let's see here. You know, I was kind of like, oh, well, he's actually letting me. So I finally kind of spit out like the Romans road and just, you know, was not elegant, was not good. And he just sat there and looked at me. I said, well, do you want to pray? And he kind of looked at me and goes, yeah, I would. I said, Do you want to pray to receive Jesus? <laughs> yes, I would. This means you'll be like your crazy Christian neighbor. <laughs> yeah, I do. Do you know what that really means? That you're giving your life to Jesus. You can no longer be an atheist. Yeah, I want now let me explain to you that this is not a of jail free car, right? I'm like, how is this working? And he prayed and believed in Jesus Christ. Well, I'm just the mailman. Okay, Lord. Sometimes we just say, All right, God. This is what I'm supposed to do. I'm just a watchman. My job is to deliver the mail. And then Jesus, I trust you with the results. And he does great, great things. That's it. I think we forget like how the church was birthed. I was talking to Mark yesterday about this. And I went to school and there's a lot of learning, a lot of like systems that they put on you. And I always kept Acts 4.13 in front of me. And it says this, that the people, all of them, took note of the disciples, that they were unlearned and ignorant men, but they had been with Jesus. Why'd they change Jerusalem? Because they'd been with Jesus. Like the greatest message we have is being with Jesus. Yes, we got to sharpen. Yes, we learn things. That's what we're doing tonight. Yes, we want to eat and fill up on this scroll. Totally. But ultimately, we're just watchmen. That we obey our king and then trust him with the outcome. That's what God's telling Ezekiel. Bro, I know the rebellious house. I've been dealing with them for a thousand years. I know the rebellious house. I'm telling you that. Your job is just deliver the mail. And then trust me with the outcome. I think God would say that to some of us tonight. They try to make it too complicated or worry about not having enough tools. Just be the mailman. Just be the male woman. Maybe I should say male person. Just be the male person. Deliver the mail. And then trust Jesus, the King, with the outcome. So that's his mission. Rebellious house. He's a watchman delivering the mail. And then we get some of his methods. I'll go super fast here. Chapter 4. His method is this, put on a play and then prophesy. So he gets like attention and then he preaches, which is a pretty good method. Chapter four, verse one. And you son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it. And cast up a mound around it, set camps against it, and plant battering rams against it all around. And you take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and set your face toward it, and let it be in a state of siege, and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel." And lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign you a number of days, 390 days. Then verse 6. And when you've done these, flip over <laughs> and lie down a second time. But on your right side and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. 40 days I assign you a day for each year. So can you imagine this? Like, you're in this refugee camp. There's probably 10,000, 15,000 people, you know, crammed in. And this crazy dude starts building this model city of Jerusalem, bringing out like little battering rams and catapults and and siege stuff. And then he lays on his side for 430 days, like playing like all day long. (laughs) Like, he'd be like, okay, dude's (laughs) lost his mind. He's crazy. Myron would be like, dude, can I play with you? That looks like a lot of fun. So you start seeing, like, what Ezekiel's going to be doing is a little nutty. And then on top of that, he's told, verse 9, "'Take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them into a single vessel, and make your bread from them during the numbers of your day, and lie on your side 390 days, and you shall eat it, and your food that you shall eat shall be by weight.'" 20 shekels a day from day to day, you shall eat it and your water. You shall drink by measure the sixth part of an hen. Has anyone here heard of Ezekiel bread? Okay. Comes from this verse right here. And so there's like this idea that it's like this divine recipe for like a cure-all. It cures everything. If you eat Ezekiel bread, you'll live to be 962 years of age right? If you've read about Ezekiel bread, that's what people say. The truth is this, it's a siege ration. This is what you would eat in a siege. He's acting out the whole thing. The amount, 20 shekels, is a tiny amount. It's this tiny amount of really poor quality food in this day. It's siege food. And whenever I see people talk about like the recipe, they never take the recipe all the way. Because God says, when you cook up this bread— Guess what you use for fuel? Human dung, right? Nobody has that in the divine recipe though. (laughs) That doesn't make it in. No, we'll just do this part of it. And Ezekiel actually says, God, listen, I can't do human dung. And so instead he gets to cook it over cow dung. I'm like, Ezekiel, you need to be trained in the art of negotiation. Because I would have been like, okay, We have this siege ration over here. How about we do Chinese takeout? And then let's see where we meet in the middle. I think I can get a little bit more out of this. So this is is him doing the entire thing. He's eating for 430 days siege food. A minimal amount, just about enough to keep a person alive. Because here's what's coming, verse 16. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety. Oh no, are we going to have enough? And they shall drink water by measure in dismay. We're going to run out. And I will do this that they may lack bread and water and look at one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. Bad, bad times. That's his play number one. Play number two, chapter five, verse one. And you, O son of man, take a sharp sword, use it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. Can you imagine that? A big sword shaving your face and shaving your head. He would have been a bloody mess. I'm surprised this isn't like a hipster haircut, like the Ezekiel haircut. We have Ezekiel bread, and we have an Ezekiel haircut. You get your hair cut with a sword. Like, this is brutal. Shave your head this way. Then take balances for weighing and divide the hair. A third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city. So he's putting this on. People are watching him take a sword to his head and his face. And then he grabs the hair. He divides it up in three chunks. He burns the first chunk. A third part, you shall take and strike with a sword all around the city. Then he carries a third of his hair around the refugee camp, and he's just hitting it with the sword, knocking off pieces all over. And then a third part, you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheathe a sword after them. And you shall take from these a small number and bind them in the skirts of your rope. Tie a couple of your hairs to your belt for the rest of the book. <laughs> And these again, you shall take some of them and cast them in the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there, a fire will come out into all the house of Israel. So here he goes, maybe Kanye West, just kind of goes completely crazy for a second. Shaves his head with a sword, scatters this stuff around, just nutty. Priests, this is real important, priests were not allowed to shave their head or shave their beard. So what Ezekiel is being told here is this, you're not a priest. You're not a priest. Even though that's what you were raised to be, you're not a priest. But it's wider than just Ezekiel. It's this, Israel is no longer my priestly nation. So Ezekiel is representing the nation of Israel. God's call to them was, I want you to be a kingdom of priests because of their sin, because of their disobedience that had continued on for centuries, God now has said, you can no longer have it. You have defiled your position. You cannot be that anymore. And what you see as you read through this, and we don't have time, is there comes up these really important terms. One of them is sadakah. So if you look down at verses five and seven, there's these rules. They've not kept my rules. They've not kept my rules. That's the Hebrew word, mishpah. Sadakah and mishpah, justice and righteousness. What God wanted from Abraham on was this, I want a nation that will be just and will be right. And if you're a nation of justice and righteousness, you will spread out to all the other nations what happens when you follow me. Instead of being just and righteous, here's what they become. It's the twin sins, chapter six, verse one. The word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, set your face against the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, you mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and the valleys. Behold, I, even I will bring a sword upon you and I will destroy your high places. Your altar shall become desolate and your incense altar shall be broken down and I will cast down your slain before your idols. Sin number one of the Old Testament is idolatry. So instead of, Mizpah and Sadaka, righteousness and justice, they're full of idols. Sin number two, chapter 7, verse 23. Forge a chain. For the land is full of bloody crimes and the city is full of violence. I will bring the worst of the nations to take possession of their houses. I will put an end to the pride of the strong and their holy places shall be profaned. When anguish comes, they will seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster upon disaster, rumor follows rumor. They seek a vision from the prophet, while the law perishes from the priest and the counsel from the elders. Verse 23, the land is full of bloody crimes and violence, injustice. Instead of what God had wanted them to be, a nation of justice and righteousness, they became a nation of injustice, crimes, Violence, not caring for the poor, not caring for the widow, in a nation of idolatry. So God says, I'm judging you. A third's going to go by the fire, a third by the sword, a third will be scattered. That's what's going to happen. One thing to note, and we're done. Notice over and over, and this is a theme in Ezekiel, chapter 6, verse 10a says this. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. Chapter 6, verse 14. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. Chapter 7, verse 4. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. Chapter 7, verse 9. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. Chapter 7, verse 27. The king mourns, the prince is wrapped in despair, the hands of the people of the land are paralyzed by terror. According to their ways, I will do to them. According to their judgments, I will judge them, and they shall know that I am Yahweh. He repeats it over and over and over and over and over again. When I judge my people, then everyone's gonna know that I am Yahweh. Why does God say that? Why would judgment cause people to know who he is. Seems the opposite to me. But God makes sure and repeat it over and over and over again. It is my judgment on my people that's going to let the nations, let Israel, let others know that I'm Yahweh. It's a theme, actually. In the book of Exodus, when they're released, God judges Egypt. And over and over he says this, this is how the people in Egypt will know that I am Yahweh. So what's going on? Real quick, 2,500 years ago, when people thought about gods in the ancient Near East, this is what they thought. There was territorial gods. She so had a God of Oregon, the God of rust and rain. He had a God of California, the God of sun and melanoma. You had a God of Idaho, the God of AR-15 rifles. You had a God of Louisiana, the God of Mardi Gras, whatever, right? You had different gods with different kind of things, and they protected their territory. And so if your people were in your territory, they got protected by that God because it's his territory, his stuff, hands off. And the gods would battle each other through kings and through people and through whatever. So so that's what they believed. They had this kind of thing, right? Well, Yahweh comes and says, not me. There's no boundary for me. I can go from Jerusalem to Babylon if I want. I'm not limited by boundaries. I am the creator God. I go wherever I want. But more than that, God says this I'll actually bring judgment on my own people. Now, why is that? Because the other gods of the lands did not do that. They protected their people because their people fed them. You know, there's all these stuff that. But God here says they're going to know that I'm Yahweh by the fact that I actually judge my own people. Why is that? Here's why. It's showing that God is a God of justice. I bring justice on whomever. I think this is radically important. I was in a conversation with a guy who said this. Look, the Bible and the Koran are the same. They say kill people. And my answer to him was right here, God's justice. It was actually this exact thing. I said, yeah, the Quran says this, kill the infidel. But when God says it, God is angry not at infidels, not at outsiders. God is angry at one thing, it's evil. And God does not care where that evil comes from. If it's his own people, in fact, the book of 1 Peter says, judgment begins at the house of God. God says, I clear my house first. Why? Because I am angry at evil. My people are unjust. My people are sacrificing their babies to Moloch. My people are evil, and it's their evil that I'm gonna root out of them. That God's anger is not at people, it's at the evil in people, and He will take it out no matter who they are. So He gave the Canaanites 400 years to repent of their wickedness. They didn't, He removes them from the land. He gives His people years and years and years to repent of their wickedness. They do not repent. What does God do to them? Well, they're my people, so they get a special favor. Uh uh. You're evil, you're gone too. Because God hates evil. And when you understand God's justice, it is actually one of the most comforting qualities of God. Because if you've ever been hurt, you will love God's justice. If you don't love God's justice, most likely you've never been hurt. But when you've been hurt, you say, I'm so glad that God is gonna deal with evil. And there's in this last verse, verse 27, one little warning that I think is applicable to us. It says this. The king mourns. The prince is wrapped in despair. The hands of the people are paralyzed. According to their way, I will do to them. According to their judgments, I will judge them. What does that sound like? You will reap what you sow, doesn't it? What you did to other people is gonna come back on you. The same way you judged people, I will judge you. Galatians 6, 7. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. If you sow to the Spirit, you're gonna reap life everlasting. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap destruction. I tell people that quote that, that's important, but always go to the next verse, verse nine, because verse nine says this. Do not grow weary in well-doing, for if you faint, you will reap if you faint not. Here, I think, is a very important thing for us to leave on. We're in a season right now where we have this great opportunity to abound in Sadakah and mishpah, that we can be just and righteous, that we can be a light shining out in this great month of showing people what Jesus is like, what Israel did not do Showing God's justice, showing God's kindness, showing God's mercy. This is the month to do it. Do you know that? I call, I say December is the month to remember. What do we remember? Jesus, his graciousness, his kindness, his mercy, his qualities. This is our month to be sadakah and mishpah, to be sowing great seeds during this month, treating people better than they ever deserve. Because you and I, uniquely have been invited into this thing called the kingdom of Jesus, where we join with him in reconciling the world back to himself. And we do that through all these little ways. Loving people. Giving a gift to somebody that does not deserve it. Writing a letter to somebody that cuts you off and is no longer your friend or no longer your family member. Just saying, you know what? I just want to drop a note to you because I remembered how good my king is. And I want you to know that too. This is the month to do it. December is when we remember Jesus and we start to shine that light out to people. And the seeds we can sow in this month, man, can change 2017. Remember. Remember, you're joining with kingdom work. Remember, you're a kid of the king. Remember that and follow him. Sow good seed. Because you will reap if you faint not. Don't faint, keep sowing. So, Jesus, I thank you for Ezekiel, a tough section in Ezekiel. And where Israel failed because they needed heart surgery, Lord, for each of us in here that love Jesus, you've done that heart surgery. We have the ability. We have your Ruach now. We've been given your spirit. We have everything that we need for life and godliness. And so I pray for Wednesday night. I pray for each of us in here. I pray that beginning tomorrow, December 1st, that December would be the month to remember you. To remember your incredible forgiveness. To remember your mercy and your grace, to remember your generosity, to remember your kindness, to remember your bigness. That we would be reflecting that as image bearers of Jesus, ambassadors of Jesus this month in Grants Pass, in our homes, in neighborhoods, in workplaces, at the restaurant, wherever we, we are at, Lord, that we would, by the power of your spirit, in the month of December, be planting a crop that makes Grant's Pass beautiful. So fill us, empower us, I pray. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.